have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. You are standing on a smooth green carpet of grass. Your ball is 15 feet from the hole. Beyond the green, two pristine podcasters look out toward the Emerald Fairway. This one is Khalil, and with him today is the apple butter to his saltines. I've I've seen this podcast before. What do you what do you mean, Professor? What have you what have you mean you've seen it before? <laughs> I've seen it before. <laughs> but unfortunately, but it's an audio podcast, Professor. What do you mean you've seen it? How do you see a podcast? <laughs> it's it's been smothered with the smell of engine oil. No, no. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so. So, Professor and I may have uh, seen or heard or smelled uh, or even tasted this podcast before because, um, funny story. We were recording this podcast about a week ago and we made a little offhand joke like, Hey, wouldn't it be hilarious if somehow we like lost half the audio? So it was only one of us talking. Wouldn't that be really funny? I'll give you a hint. What happened? Wouldn't that be really funny? I'll give you a hint. Yeah, uh, it was definitely hilarious. Unfortunately, uh, due to a few fun technical circumstances, uh, my side of the audio was lost. But hey, that means that there is a secret Khalil cut out there. Yeah. So if you all want to hear a one-sided conversation with the Khalil cut, please email snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. You've, you've already got the Snyder cut coming. You know, um, I think uh, this is the next step. So... Basically, we're trying to get across is that for you guys, this is the first time, uh, assuming you're not re-listening to this podcast. Um, for us, this is the second time. So if we sound a little bit more rehearsed, like we've been here before, um, that's why. Yeah, honestly, uh, it's it's sad because the last cut, like uh, we, I was congratulated. Uh, we had uh, guests, uh, McLaughlin, as well as David Lynch, come and pat me on the back and tell me how right I was on all my opinions. I was even given a trophy. You can't see it right now, but it is a very beautiful uh, trophy saying about how right. And then I they am. stuck a letter inside of his fingernail and everything. It was really cute. It was painful. Um. <laughs> so today, for the second time, we are looking at episode 10, The Man Behind Glass, written by Robert Engels and directed by Leslie Linka Glatter. Which honestly is very concerning because there's only so many people behind glass that we've seen. I mean, there was a reflection of a brand new character uh, that, quite frankly, uh, I really hope it, this is not a reference to him. I, I, I'm... My, is my preference that we get as little of him as possible. There are a few men behind glass in this film. I like to believe that that you are right, that the man behind glass is none other than Dick Tremaine. Uh, We met in this episode like three to five new characters. Um, And I no, it's five. Three to five. These other two are not partial characters. They are two of them are women. By definition. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. Khalil. I'm joking. Women characters matter. Just not these two in particular. (laughs) (laughs) So. Spoilers if oh, anyone thought no. that spoilers if anyone thought Jacoby's wife is a major character at this point with her zero lines of dialogue. Um so we meet a lot of you new know, characters. Uh, now I feel betrayed. We meet a lot of new characters in this episode and I honestly really like this episode and it restores faith in me that even when David Lynch and Mark Frost 
aren't given explicit credits behind the episode, even when they're writing and directing it from other people, they can still introduce new characters, new concepts, new ideas, and do a great job with it. This episode, a lot actually happens, and I think it's pulled off quite well. So let's start, Professor, with some of these characters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Dealer's Choice. Dealer's Choice. Okay, well, as much as I want to jump to Dick Tremaine, because he's my favorite, um, <laughs> I have Harold first, so we'll, we'll address... The Herald in the room. Oh, God. Um, first thing we first thing we get of Harold, we get of Harold is that uh, he he apparently had been watching Donna the previous day. She hadn't met him, but he had been you weren't wearing the same sweater. Not only ha does he notice the type of sweater, he is <laughs> very friendly enough to say that the sweater she has on today is much better. So he simultaneously dissed her yesterday's sweater and complimented her current sweater. It's very smooth. It's very smooth. First impression on a lady, you let her know which clothing she wore was better when you were spying on her. Uh, smooth as apple butter. Nah. And then speaking of apple butter, Donna comes in. Yeah, hey, like a gentleman. Do you want some lemonade? You want some saltines and apple butter? And he joins her at the couch. Not awkward at all. Oh, or, or uh, do you want to wash your hands? Uh, a true gentleman asks if someone wants to wash their hands. I mean, you're going to eat. It's uh. Hey, in this age, keeping yourself clean and bacteria free is very important for <laughs> prevention of illness. This guy's also a shut in, too. I think he'd probably want the person from the outside world to be as clean as possible. Mm hmm. Yeah, we don't know much why he's a shut in. And I know that he has only really interacted with Laura, of all people, personally, or as far as we know. Uh, but regardless, like he is being uh, complimented as this very like suave, intelligent man. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I'm just waiting for like the shots to linger for a full five seconds as he stares before <laughs> ending with a sound like. <laughs> so uh, he appreciates beautiful flowers and I think he views young women as the same thing. Oh, yeah. He appreciates a lot of things like secret notes hidden distinctly under his bookcase, as well as keeping diaries of certain Laura Palmers. So he very conspicuously has the slip of paper <laughs> uh, in the bookshelf not hiding the Laura Palmer diary at all. Um, he's not good at hiding things. <laughs> no, uh, honestly, if he had a chance to get out more, if he was even trying, maybe he planted them. <laughs> he planted them. <laughs> Because he's a horticulturist, or or used to be. Listeners, he plant, get it planted. Listeners, uh, I will not blame you for stepping aside for a moment. Uh, go ahead, pause the video, take it in. I can't pause my life. You can at least pause. This for is our me. second time doing it. Can you tell? Yeah. <laughs> so he so he's a, he likes plants. Uh, mm -hmm. He he wanted Donna to place some uh, flowers on Laura's grave. He raises orchids because they don't need a lot of light. Which, by the way, that um, uh, orchid was a special hybrid, the Lady Slipper, uh, which is quite yes. nicely named, uh, especially with my conspiracies. But we'll talk more later on that. And who in the story of Cinderella, who gives the lady her slipper? You OK, I know sometimes you have trouble with these stories professor. <laughs> in, the, in the Brothers Grimm story of Cinderella, who puts the slipper on her on Cinderella, Don't the titular Rella of the I know <laughs> it's it, it's the prince. Uh huh. Therefore, uh -huh. her prince charming Donna's prince charming must be Harold Smith. Mm -hmm. If you rearrange the letters in the name Harold Smith, you know what you get? Prince charming. <laughs> 
Oy vey, oy vey, oy vey. No, um, yeah, uh, I, I don't want to think about Harold in any other light than suspicious at the moment. Uh, I don't think that he will comfortably sit anywhere in my mind until we get to the next episode, I'm sure. Then it might just get a little bit more Fair. uncomfortable, depending on the context of that diary. Well, and considering we watched this episode quite a while ago, you've had a, a time for it to linger on your mind uh, without any necessarily oh, continuation yeah. on what Harold is. <laughs> So, yeah, thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for reminding me. No, no. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, he mentions to Donna that Laura wanted him to get in touch with uh, Donna if anything ever happened to her. Um, he said that Donna, uh, Laura had told her that Donna would ask a lot of questions and he feels like he knows her super well, despite having never met Donna before from all the things Laura told him. Uh, apparently, he says he was yeah. Laura's friend. He knew her ever since she started on Meals on Wheels. Uh, and he says, Laura liked to think of me as a mystery in her life. That's why Donna never knew about Harold. I, I just like the fact that like they just met and the fact that she asks two or three questions. Pretty sure it was two, but it might be three. That's where he asked. <laughs> she said that you would ask a lot of questions like See, it's like the modern equivalent of imagine like meeting someone and they're like, don't worry, I already know all about you. I've looked at your Facebook profile a lot. (laughs) And they just like they have a gratuitous amount of knowledge of like what you've done in like certain years of your life based on like photos from your your Facebook page. It's like, yeah, I remember back in 2018 when you went over to Hawaii. Man, those are some great pictures. Love the outfit, by the way. No, it's I I think it's more like (laughs) that's Harold. (laughs) Yeah, Harold is the type of person who's like, yeah, remember about three months ago when you liked that photo i liked it too uh <laughs> you couldn't see that i liked it because we weren't friends with each other but <laughs> but i saw you i saw you it brought uh. us closer <laughs> uh he does say that she is every bit as lovely as laura uh, said she was um so there's that I feel like we're much more negative on Harold this recording. <laughs> Listeners, we were we sung his praises the first time. I we swear. did. Uh, <laughs> then Laura apparently always used to say Donna Madonna. There's always manana. Which is a Laura thing, I guess. <laughs> um, so my, my, my question for you. Yeah. Uh, my question for you, Professor, is if there was a Twin Peaks dating sim, would you go for Harold Smith or Dick Tremaine? Those are your only two options. Dick Tremaine. Dick Tremaine. Because at the very least, uh, when Mm. it comes towards like the one person, I'm not afraid that I'm going to become one with the plants inside of his home. Uh, Dick Tremaine, I'll just be neglected (laughs) to death. You're going to help them grow. You're going to be the soil. (laughs) I'll just be neglected to death with Dick Tremaine. Dick Tremaine (laughs) is his name is quite apt. He works at the uh, designer men's uh, section of uh, uh, does designer men's clothing was it of the horn department store he is horns he he introduced himself richard tremaine horns department store designer menswear yes 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 uh as far as this character goes <laughs> uh one the only thing that i'm really happy about from this man is that uh it does expand the horns department store universe for us uh so that we can continue to uh see more and more from the horns department store uh we've got baddest we've got random lady working at the counter and now we've got Dick Tremaine. Dick! It's almost like it actually exists. It's almost like the perfume counter and the department store are real places in the physical world. It, it's a front. It is a front. They are only there for <laughs> display. No, We have not seen anything sold at the uh, counter, but I never said that the department store was a front. I only saw the perfume counter as the front. Um, That's fair. 
But yeah, I had the biggest smile when Dick Tremaine showed up when he walked into the police department. Oh, Dick I Tremaine had such did a too. Big smile. Dick Tremaine did he too. He looked in his reflection, and he he has the same feeling about him that I have about him. When he looks at himself, and I look at him, it's the same reaction. Basically, the same thing. I think the perfect thing is that uh, not only is he a really fancy smoker, but he just ignores the no smoking sign completely and just looks straight into his reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's that's just for the common people. No, like, like that rule doesn't apply to him. That I think that's it, it's an excellent introduction. It's more of a suggestion than a rule. Anyway, it's an excellent introduction, <laughs> though, because that is Dick Tremaine's character in general. Yeah. He is someone that is so like self aggrandizing, putting on this image that it are beyond like beyond him. This is where Ben Horn should be. But he is slipping into those shoes. Um very nicely for himself. Mm. He kind of disregards everything around him uh, when he goes on his little date with Lucy. Uh, he's just continues on his story and so on. Like Lucy clearly like drops one of her utensils. He just like looks down and lets her pick it up and just continues on his story. And he mm-hmm. keeps talking and talking and talking. And even when Lucy has a little bit of a rebuttal, he just keeps on with the story. Like, no, actually, oh, I'm Dick Tremaine. Yeah, yeah, he brings up this whole thing where it's like, Lucy, I must ask you something. You know, and then he asks her if it's odd the way he eats with his fork. Only for her to, like, make a comment of, like, yeah, I mean, my family used to call it piling. And it's like he had already in reserves his reply. It didn't matter what Lucy said. I feel like if Lucy would have said, no, it's fine, he would have said the same thing anyway because he already knew what he was going to do. He wasn't actually asking for her opinion. It's just like... He has to have another person so he can, like, voice his opinion to them. And he said, no, it's actually not odd at all. It's the European way. Because, uh, you know, Dick Tremaine, very European. Like, I don't know about... Super European. Classy European. <laughs> I don't know what uh, Lucy's relationship points are like. I do not know uh, where she is actively dating uh, or if she recognizes herself as actively dating. Uh, she said that uh, they had seen each other a few times and they... Uh, had went to, uh, like, instead of going to the Needle Point in Seattle, mm-hmm. they went off to uh, the Pancake uh, place uh, nearby. Um, and she felt that was something special. She said that she laid down with him. Um, and she also mentioned that she was pregnant, in fact, um, with fun reactions all around. But regardless, like, Lucy, there are red flags all around you. What? Yeah. We, we need to talk about, like, finding a good match. They went out with each other every Thursday for three months. Um, so she she's definitely should have seen the, tra- you know, the, the concerns that we've seen because we've known the guy for all of 10 minutes and we already have like red flags flying over the place. Yeah, he's saying that they should go Dutch at a frickin diner. Like, I'm sorry that apparently <laughs> I mean, I have no problem with going Dutch. Like, like, here's the thing. I'm OK with going Dutch. I'm OK with splitting tickets. But the problem is, is that with his lofty promises, trying to take her different places yeah. and in order to make up for someone uh, by saying that he'll promise a 20 percent discount on what, like clothing wear, an employee discount. I'm sorry. This guy is so frugal. This guy is not. Giving. You know, he's going to buy the cheapest dress. He's going to buy the cheapest dress that is on its way out. It's not going to be the right size. <laughs> no, in fact, he's going to buy the cheapest curtains and sew it together and call it a freaking dress. I'm sorry. It's the European dress. Like, I respect 
I respect people who are willing to take their own bills, take their own sense of responsibilities, but this person is trying to literally just take on this lofty persona and basically take advantage of, like, this woman's insights of him. Like, this is not a nice man. You know, it's interesting for me to think about, we talked before about how Hank is kind of a fusion of Benjamin Horn and Leo. We made that comment a while back. And you've also compared Dick Tremaine now to Ben Horn. My question is... Yeah, this is discount Ben. If 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 Hank is Ben and Leo, then Dick Tremaine is Ben and who? Who is the mixture? Who's the other half of this? No, he is discount Ben. He's just he just ben. diet Ben. Okay. He is Ben Zero. He is <laughs> negative one Ben. This is just less Ben. I do not need to compare him to anything else. I think if it's negative Ben, he's like an ant. He's the opposite of Ben. He's got to be 0.5 Ben. <laughs> Whatever decimal point or value you have to put onto him. <laughs> nonetheless, he is less than Ben. That's saying something, I think. Uh, in his defense, though, the possible the possible sign of improvement here is that when he finds out that uh, Lucy is, in his own words, preggers. He just takes a drag of a cigarette and he stays sitting next to her. He doesn't leave her like Andy did. So it's still better than Andy. Look, Andy at least can admit points of fault. Andy can at least like take a stand and try to communicate. Dick Tremaine is just there. But I think Dick Tremaine is mostly there for himself more than anything. Like there might be this big moment coming up in the few episodes. That's going to be my personal Dick Tremaine uh, redemption arc. I'm not seeing it for uh, beyond the horizons or anything like that. Um, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm not fond of Dick Tremaine. You, you've known the guy for 10 minutes and you're you're already convinced, you know, him. <laughs> uh, no, no, forgive me for not seeing into a paper thin man. But uh, I suppose that there are a few other characters left over. Uh, who do you want to go to next? Uh, again, there are three characters, not one, three. <laughs> so in order of importance, <laughs> next is Jean Renault. <laughs> So, you know, one thing one thing I was going to say is that, you know, I I think it's fun hearing your your reactions to uh, to uh, Dick Tremaine. And of course, some of this is facetious. I know where these characters go and I don't I know if they're going to change or not. What I think is just really fun, though, about this episode is that Harold Smith and Dick Tremaine, we really did just meet them. But I think that they are actually some of the like most clearly characterized characters in this show when it comes to first impressions. Mm-hmm. They are handled very, very well. Now, someone could say maybe it's a bit overbearing that their, their characters are too coming on strong. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that that's kind of their appeal for some people. Harold is different from other the characters, and you get to know that right away. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dick Tremaine is, you know, whether you like him or not, again, he comes across very strong, but that's his personality. Dick Tremaine is not a subtle guy. Nope. That's, that's the sense we're getting out uh-huh. of him. So our third main character, and we will get to our two other characters soon after, uh, Jean Renault. Um, I think he is helped a bit by the fact that this isn't the first time we've met someone in his family. Uh, there was a comment that you had made, Professor, or we had talked about in a previous podcast with the Renaults, and you were wondering how many more Renaults are there going to be? And I made a little quippy little fun conversation like, I don't know, it'd be funny if there were more of them. <laughs> 
finally we have met the next in the assembly line, Jean <laughs> Renault. You for, from the from the makers from the makers of Bernard and the people who brought you Jacques, we bring you Jean. The next entry in the French Canadian Dynasty. Funniest part about it is that like Jean is probably the most French out of it, all his brothers. Um. <laughs> oh, Professor, I got a joke. I got a joke for you, Professor. Okay, I'm listening. Okay, so you know how like there's that TV show called Duck Dynasty. Uh huh. Uh huh. So if the Renaults are a French Canadian dynasty, they're not the Duck Dynasty. They're the Canuck Dynasty. <laughs> Get it? Because that's a term used for Canadians. I don't know if it's offensive, by the way. If that's considered a slur, I apologize. Don't don't come at me. I, I don't I never use it in my own life. Um, I think my heart has stopped. I cannot feel anymore. Uh, this is the last podcast you'll ever hear from me. Uh, thanks to that. Uh, <laughs> but regardless, uh, yeah, John Renault is introduced. Um, not much from him yet. Uh, well, we actually do get uh, a good amount of impressions from him. But as far as uh, his overall presence um i'm still team jacques thus far um jacques is still my favorite renault brother <laughs> so in, in, in the battle between um jean going candy's dandy a eh, you're more a fan of uh bite, bite the, the bullet, bullet baby yes uh bite the bullet baby not only is it uh an impressively shot scene um but it is Something that will likely be lingering in the back of my head. Uh, the uh, caramel moment was nice, subtle and a good sort of delicious. Yes, yeah, delicious uh, intro to him. But uh, it's it's not going to be as nearly as memorable. Um, sure. But, but still, I'm anticipating uh, fun things from Jean. He seems a little bit spiteful to Cooper and seems to be in it with Blackie. Yeah, he he. It's one of his main goals right now is to get revenge. Yeah, uh, with everything happening with Audrey at the moment, since uh, it seems that Blackie is trying to get her addicted to drugs, uh, similar to how Jerry and Ben had done to her. Uh, it seems that John is mm -hmm. stepping in because he wants vengeance against Cooper, who happened to be around. So it looks like uh, One Eye Jax is going to be playing a very fun role, uh, at least in the upcoming episodes. Uh, in truth, like at the very least with John's appearance, uh, time has always been weird and being chronological in Twin Peaks has mm -hmm. been weird. I don't know when uh, this meeting is necessarily taking place. Uh, could it be that uh, a man was sent in or he it himself? It took place before episode one, actually. <laughs> it's, it's the first thing in the chronological timeline. But seriously, <laughs> uh, could this have been uh, something yeah. that um, he either sent a guy or there might have been something up uh, upsetting that might have happened with the gunman at Cooper's door. I don't think so because, oh no, that wouldn't be the case because I'm pretty sure waking up the next day, that's when the news came by. Yeah. So yeah, nope, uh, never mind. Still just the milkman is the most I think all killer. we really have to go by <laughs> I think all we have to, good, good he's not out of the out of the house yet that's not a saying. Um, but I guess all we really have to go by is that they've been recording this footage of Audrey to like basically get ransom money and we haven't seen that get leaked out yet to Ben or the um, the uh, police or anything. We haven't heard about that yet. Uh -huh. So odds are they haven't released that tape yet uh, on that tape. Not really on it, but but when they were talking about that tape, uh, I think genre his his contradicting words are interesting when it's Emery in the room. 
Jean Renault says that he wants 30% of the cut of the money they're going to get from Ben. And he wants the man who killed his brother, Cooper. And he promises in return that Ben will never find out that One-Eyed Jacks were the ones who kidnapped Audrey. Mm. But then after Audrey, not after Audrey, when after um, Emery Battis leaves, he says to Blackie that, you know that girl can't live now. So they're planning on killing Audrey. So he kind of sends contradicting evidence depending on who's in the room. So he doesn't really trust Emery with that information. But when it's just him and Blackie, it's like, all right, we're going to get the money, but we're not going to give Audrey back. They're going to have to do something else here. Yep. Um, we also get at that moment, Nancy. Uh, oh, uh, go on. Uh, Nancy? Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, <laughs> Nancy, no, no, Blackie's go, sister. Go, okay, no, oh, no, no. Oh, okay, you cannot, no, no, you cannot get out of this. You were telling me, oh, it's not It's not three characters. It's more than three. Women no, no. count as people, too. No, no. Okay, my, well, brain was still on, my brain was still on John because uh, I was going to jump off of your contradiction point. Um, there's also that scene earlier that we were talking about with the little fun candy moment where uh, he is being very sweet with sweets uh, and uh, almost like treating her like I would imagine some of the patrons of um, One-Eyed Jacks, if you will, uh, just being very sensual and uh, being very direct, but at the same time getting another syringe going. Uh, this sense of two-facedness from uh, Jean is probably one of the most exciting points of the character with me at the moment. Mm -hmm. But He betrays very little in that either. Like, you can't really read him. Mm -hmm. You can't read his face. You can't read his feelings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, he, he's I'm still excited, but still Team Shock. Uh, but yes, talking about Nancy. You know whose feelings we can read? Nancy's. Yeah, we can read Nancy's because Nancy and Blackie don't want anything to do with each other. And that is immediately very clear to us. We don't know why. Yeah. And it seems that uh, Nancy, as well as Jean, have a lot to do with one another. Uh, don't know about their more official relationship, but it, it does seem that they're quite loving around one another at the very least. Um, even in the quite lusting around each yes, other at the very uh, least. <laughs> but uh I don't know. I don't know if we can call it loving, love at this lusting, point, um, regardless, uh, there's j even still this little toyish comment in which uh, Blackie goes about saying uh, you're going to have to send her away. And uh, the uh, sister is just more so it's like, no, but John and John's like, yeah, no, uh, we'll get everything <laughs> that we want. So, yeah, she's going to stay. So, <laughs> well, and she uh, won't even talk to Blackie. So she has to have Jean be the interpreter. Yep. <laughs> I feel like that's the something I would find in like Rugrats. <laughs> like it's 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 very very immature. Uh, last Absolutely. thing I guess it's I had great. on John specifically, I was I was disappointed that the opening credit scroll when it goes through at the opening, it does say you know so and so as Jean Renault. I don't remember the actor's name. I apologize, but it does spoil that Jean Renault is going to be in it. I wish for this first appearance they just hadn't said who it was going to be. I mean, I understand contractual obligations and everything. It, they probably didn't have a say in it, but I really wish that they could have just said the actor's name. And then from that episode on, we could say Jean Renault if they want. But kind of spoils is going to be a Renault. Now, but the advantage, though, is that it seems that they took um, that instance and put it in a good scene because I was absolutely distracted because Ronette was convulsing all over the place uh, and that had come up, but I didn't notice through my first viewing, so I was just completely oblivious to it. Uh, so Jean still remained as a surprise. Sure. So um, I, I, I still got to say for whoever put those... Um, scenes together thank you <laughs> just just to uh yeah keep making it the best man. of a bad situation yes 
They should have just made it really tiny font. <laughs> like it's the actor as and then like size three font. Really, really, really tiny. So tiny that the border of the text like kind of makes it impossible to read. No, they should just that replace all the text in uh, the Twin Peaks intro with wingdings uh, just to avoid any Ooh, sort of issue. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it's still on there and it's still the same font. It's just a bunch of wingdings. That would definitely not draw attention. Um, while, while we're while we're talking about uh, Jean uh, and, and Audrey here, um, a little little side thing that I, I think would be good to talk about. We get a conversation with Cooper and Ben that happens. I think it's really not really much Ben we get in this episode. But when we do get him talking with Cooper, he detects that Cooper's feelings on Audrey might be a little bit more than just a professional relationship. It might be more than just a little bit that he wants to help her because she's in danger. There might be something else going on. And he says to Cooper, let me give you the best advice you're going to get all week. Men fall under the spell of Audrey's charms like ducks in a shooting gallery. And if you don't want a load of buckshot in your tail feathers, may I suggest that you park your jalopy outside of someone else's window? Um, so I thought it was really cool to see this sort of power play with Ben and Cooper, because we recently saw the power dynamics with Ben, Jerry and, and uh, Hank. I almost said Hawk. <laughs> as far as we know, Hawk's not hanging out with them. Um, but I think it's really cool. Anytime I get to see Ben maneuver around the power dynamics with other characters who are also very commanding presences. And yeah. Cooper, I think, ultimately was overpowered in this situation. Yeah, honestly, uh, the tension was very nice in that scene uh, between Cooper and Ben. Uh, kudos to the actors on that. Absolutely. Um, I also I also enjoy the following line where Cooper uh, defends his position and uh, mm -hmm. Ben just sort of laughs and just goes about it's like, yeah, but know that it's not unappreciated. Um, yeah, that is achingly <laughs> clear and not unappreciated. Mm. Uh. <laughs> uh, I love I love Ben Horn's mannerisms and word. Whenever the writers write the script for Ben, I love the way he speaks. Oh, yeah. I love his speaking. Oh, yeah. Ben definitely has some nice dialogue, except uh, not unlike his brother. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it was definitely or his spiritual brother, uh, Dick Tremaine, <laughs> his spiritual yeah. half brother, because they're he's half of him. Uh, <laughs> uh. But of course, uh, we got to say that uh, there's still one more character, Khalil, uh, that I'm not going to let you escape on. Let's talk about uh, Dr. Jacoby's wife, the lovely Hawaiian woman uh, whose name is escaping my mind and my notes. Eolani. Yolani. Eolani. I don't know. Okay, I actually don't know how to say it. I apologize. Uh, but she <laughs> is the last one needed to form Captain Planet. When, if you were to get if you were to get the combined power of Harold Smith OK, what element are these people? Harold Smith, is there like a dark element in? Is that a, I feel like Captain Planet was all like nature things. I don't know if darkness was one of them. We're going to revise him. OK, we're going to pretend. So, yeah, it's earth, air. Uh, it's earth, wind, water, fire and heart. Uh, so clearly, uh, as far as um, Harold goes, he's definitely earth. He's dealing with all his little plants here and there. Plants. Uh, I think that Dick Tremaine is heart. He's a loving man. Are any of these people heart? Okay, maybe Iolani's heart. We'll give her heart. We'll give her heart. She seems very affectionate toward her husband. Yes, we'll give Jean fire because truly he is as unpredictable as fire itself. Dick is as lofty as the wind. He just carries himself away. 
And uh, who's left with water? And uh, Nancy gets water because Nancy. that's the only thing that's left. <laughs> and that, that suits Nancy so well. Whatever's left over, just give it to her. So but the yeah. master of the of the heart ring, Iolani, uh is at the hospital and, and Jacoby's got like his whole his whole area of the uh, area of the hospital is all decked out in Hawaiian everything. Um, apparently, Iolani doesn't live in Twin Peaks. She lives at their place in Hanalei um, and they're practicing creative kahuna healing when uh, Truman and uh, the sheriff uh, walk into the room and uh, he's ready to be hypnotized. He even has an auto suggestion program that he uses that he gives to Cooper because he's been under many times. He knows what it's like to be hypnotized. And it seems like they're going to use hypnosis to try to get more information out of him to fill the gaps in his memory. And like most things, Truman just goes with it. Truman is just at this point willing to go with it. And I think Cooper might have found the only person who is more open to spiritual suggestion than even he might be. They found the right guy to use uh, hypnosis on because it seems like Jacoby is completely on board with this. And also, I really love the hypnosis inside this episode. Uh, I like to think that uh, the reason the rock was held at such a position off to the side uh, was more so just imagining like a sun off in the horizon, if you will, uh, as like this mm -hmm. perfect golf course is being set up. Um, it, it also helps that it's a very reflective rock as well. Well, and of course, you can't ignore that Iolani has the two pyramids in her hands. Mm hmm. <laughs> The two hills in which she has I'll, the Twin Peaks. She has the Twin Peaks. Uh, <laughs> so but. she has the two pyramids, the two Twin Peaks, all sacred geometry. Harry Truman's got the light that you said could be the sun. Uh, and they go through this hypnosis about golf, which I think helps explain that the golf ball trick he did during his uh, questioning way back in season one. That wasn't a one off thing. He does carry golf balls around with him, but apparently there's a canonical reason for it. And during the hypnosis, Harry almost falls under himself. Uh, you know, great little moment of levity in the situation before we get uh -huh. Jacoby revealing a little more information about what happened that night at the hospital where Jacques passed away. Uh -huh. Um, so he, he says that, uh, Originally, when he was talking to them, not under hypnosis, he said he smelled scorch engine oil in the hospital. But then when he's under hypnosis, he kind of changes the story a bit. And he says he smelled engine oil at the park. Air is filled with it, mm -hmm. which Cooper then redirects like, nope, nope, let's talk about the hospital. Let's talk about the hospital. <laughs> and uh, he says that basically after the officers and doctors leave, uh, Jacoby dreams he's juggling coconuts at a luau. And then later that night, here's the sound of tape ripping. He hears almost dog barking noises coming out of Jacques being strangled. He looks up to see who it was, and he says, I know him. I know him. Uh. I know him. So we get the answer to that way later in the episode. And I love that delayed answer. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, it it's, was It's good for the tension. It, it was absolutely really good for the tension. Uh, and just the overall looks on both Truman and Cooper's face when that... Um, is found, um, especially after Leland visited them earlier. Uh, it, 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 it was a good uh, way to split up the scenes. So very nice. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Speaking of very nice. <laughs> speaking. Speaking of very nice, uh, the log lady. <laughs> it's. Sorry, I was just appreciating how smooth the transition was. <laughs> how natural. 
No, it's still natural. I'm admiring its <laughs> no, nature. It's not. Um, so the log lady, we get an intro with it. You wanted to talk about it. Talk about it, Professor. I'm going to have to go off the cuff because apparently uh, I I tried moving it, but it looks like I cut it completely from my notes. So here we go. I can I can open up what she exa- what the exact words were. Yes, could you, you do that? But yeah, we'll talk about log lady. Absolutely. Positive, profusely. Don't cut anything. We're good. Uh, Twin Peaks episode. And this one was called The Man Behind Glass. I forgot to put the second S, but they still knew what I meant. There we go. I found it. Okay, so episode 10. Uh, What's a good log lady voice? I, I got this. Letters are symbols. They are building blocks of words which form our language. Languages help us communicate. Even with complicated languages used by intelligent people, misunderstanding is a common occurrence. We write things down, sometimes, letters, words, hoping they will serve us and those with whom we wish to communicate. Letters and words calling out for understanding. Margaret Lanterman. Honestly, I love your uh, Muppets uh, audition. Uh, I think you're going to make it really uh, great out there. Um... But it's what I was born to do. <laughs> but yes, um, as far as uh, the log lady goes, um, I especially like this intro. I think it's a very nice bridging point uh, from the prior episode to this episode, mainly because there is uh, there was that one lovely message brought from the cosmos uh, down to us in which we can only hope to interpret uh, what the owls are not what they seem. And Cooper, 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 Cooper. Uh, in fact, means as well. Um, it's definitely um, fun to un- kind of look out and see what sort of um, communication scrutiny can come from the situations, even in this episode. Uh, I think that the biggest highlight has to be the start with the log lady intro, uh, talking about that and the discovery of the diary of Laura Palmer. Uh, I feel that anything we're going to read from that book uh, definitely is going to try to tell us something, but I don't know whether or not it's going to be something I'm going to fully either trust. So what you're saying, Professor, is that at this point in time, you do want to read the diary of Laura Palmer, the book. Okay, so listeners, this is probably going to be as good as time as any, but uh, Khalil. Uh, managed to convince me uh-huh. that uh, I will be looking into the book so that around the end of season two, yeah! we'll be having a little book club uh, in one of our episodes where we'll talk about the books. The biggest thing that convinced me is one that... One of our episodes is going to be is going to be multiple episodes, Professor. Potentially. Um, but... What I'm you don't realize how dense these things I are. don't. But um, as far as these books go, um, the thing that excited me the most uh, was the fact that uh, with Audible and uh, with I, I are we sponsored? We're not sponsored <laughs> yet. Uh, not sponsored. Not sponsored yet. yet. Uh, but uh, it actually does call us. It actually does have um, the actors uh, taking on uh, reading roles. Uh, Laura Palmer reads the diary of Laura Palmer. Uh, we have, uh, was it? The actress uh, who plays her, yes. Yep, the actress who plays Or maybe she it is, is actually, really, sorry, it isn't, she's it's real. actually Laura Palmer. Uh, she is real. she's not dead, because she's not dead. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, she's not only is she not dead, she's also real. Yep. So. <laughs> uh, no, that's excellent, and I'm very happy to hear uh, that uh, Professor has... 
uh, acquiesce to my request because I, I am a big fan of the books. Uh, I, I think that they contribute a lot to Twin Peaks as a whole. Uh, that's not to say I like them all equally, but I, I do appreciate what they contribute, and I think they're just as important as any other piece of the puzzle. The worst part, um, the worst part is though, is that I've ordered uh, the books and they are sitting on my counter, and I can't touch them uh, for probably uh, a very long time uh, as these episodes trickle yeah. out. So uh, that that is my torture. Once that we I'm get through season two, a lot of your doors will open up. Oh boy. Open those floodgates. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So speaking of opening anything, <laughs> when Seamless. Cooper's door was opened up, he got shot one time, right? Remember that? That time that Cooper no. got shot? Uh, kind of forgettable instance. <laughs> uh, we learned from Albert in this episode that uh, Cooper had been shot with a Walter PPK, which is James Bond's gun. So Albert is confirmed to be a James Bond fan or James Bond is real and shot. No, it could, he could just get the information in general from like, maybe he has a, like someone he lives with that's big into James Bond that he happens to know that side bit of knowledge. Or maybe there could be maybe. like uh, a like comparison, like Wikipedia thing uh, that the agents have access to that he's just reading through like Walter P. PK. Uh, what sort of uh, references can we get? Oh, it's James Bond's gun. Uh, so we can't pin down that he is a fan, but we can at least get the idea of either a the person who shot it is a James Bond fan or b uh, one of my personal thoughts, which is, again, crazy conspiracy corner is with um the fact that the last person uh, Cooper was working with of uh, Wyndham Earl, uh, a retired agent and a retired agent coming out of the blue and an agent's whether it is stereotyped or not gun shooting him. It definitely uh, draws some concern. I don't think it's a stereotype to say that agents typically but have Walter guns. But Walter PPKs, that's, that's that might just be like movie magic, like saying like, oh, this looks like a nice gun. It looks like it'll look very sleek as an agent. I don't know if it's an agent standard or if it is going to be um, something that mm. agents would usually carry. Let's just face it. Media is very embellished uh, with all sorts of interesting things. How people handle guns in movies alone is something in which any person who's taking gun safety can be like, eh... See, so. and I know very little about guns, but what I think I can say safely is that if Albert felt it was notable to mention that it's James Bond's gun, I don't think it's standard issue for the FBI, at least as far as Albert Cooper and probably uh, Cooper's former uh, partner, Wyndham Earl, are concerned. If it was standard procedure, I think the conversation would have been, it's James Bond's gun. Oh, and ours. <laughs> so I'm going to guess it's not a gun they normally would have. Well, it might be like different departments or something Fair. like that. Again, I don't know about the James, the 007 department, the 00 uh, department. There's only one 007, Khalil. Like this could have been like a 006 situation. This could. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, Albert uh, didn't do a whole lot in this episode, but the stuff we got with him is really, really prime Albert material. Uh, some of the more memorable moments of Albert's character for a lot of people include uh, his conversation with, well, I don't know if conversation is the word, his confrontation with Truman. So oh, Truman beautiful. is finally fed up with Albert. He said, let's talk about knuckles. He kind of goes up to him and like is about to, uh, you know, physically in his face. And Albert, you know, meets him head on. He, he faces him all the same that with, with the same energy that Truman does. But instead of, you know, engaging in violence, Albert responds that he is a naysayer 
and hatchet man in the fight against violence. He will gladly take a punch and take another because he chooses to live his life in the company of Gandhi and King. His concerns are global. The foundation of such a method is love. And he says that he loves Sheriff Truman. Puts on his glasses and leaves. It's like I uh, just adore Rosenfeld. The more that I get to see him, I'm sad to see that he's going to go for a little bit. Um, he, he is just a very fantastic character very true to himself and the fact that he's even just like uh truman takes a stand and just says you know what uh the first time uh i felt bad about punching you but the next time's gonna be a pleasure and rosenfeld just follows up with this like it, it mm-hmm. it's just it's great uh rosenfeld is great he's willing to take that punch he's willing to take on truman and he's willing to work on what he feels is right um so yeah, it seems that feel like that's a good move for his character to make him a pacifist. Does it fit in line enough to make sense? I think that it is a line enough to make sense. He works on things um, in the most official sense. He sees that Truman does something that he feels that is out of line. Uh, he takes the direct course of making his report. Uh, he when he sees that uh, there's an opportunity for him to shine, he just uh, takes up his bags. He's ready to go and he's um, right on the job. Uh, when Truman uh, tries to confront him, um, he returns the sense of of confrontation but not out of a sense of um just like overall spite or vengeance but overall just saying like you're gonna put your feet down i'm gonna put my feet down too and this is where i'm at okay um Mm -hmm. i i i genuinely uh do believe in rosenfeld's uh 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 love and adoration for people uh and his work um even though he he does come off as spiteful and he does come off as very um angry at his surroundings he's just being blunt about everything Mm -hmm. that he sees this is a yokel town to him he is something that he is not used to and he is just overall sees humor in it all. So, no, Rosenfeld sure. is fantastic. Rosenfeld's great. You know, and I think this is a good a good thing for his character linking him to Cooper because we've seen so much of where Cooper doesn't agree with Albert that Cooper will side typically with the town in so far as he thinks that Albert takes it too far. But seeing this side of Albert does create a linkage between him and Cooper. Cooper does mm-hmm. say that. Uh, Albert's path is a strange and difficult one, but I think it's also a path that's not too different from Cooper's own. So I think it it does link the characters really nicely. And, you know, I guess we'll have to look moving forward. If we see Albert in a situation where someone's in danger, will he use violence to save them? You know, he's, Mm -hmm. he's mainly there to do like forensic work. You know, he's not someone who we see at any point so far trying to take down crime with a gun or anything. But Uh the real question, you know, for me is if Cooper's life was in danger or anyone's for that matter, if Truman's life was in danger, you know, would he would he take action or would he not? I think is going to be interesting to look for. He'd bite the bullet, baby. Speaking of biting and unbridled (laughs) strength, gritting her teeth. Nadine ripping through leather restraints like tissue paper. She would bite the bullet and the bullet would crumble. (laughs) This was both a very intriguing and frightening scene all at once. Uh, It's where Nadine is (laughs) just all the emotions. Yep. Uh, Nadine is out uh, and uh, Ed is approached by the doctor. The doctor just says, why don't you try singing your song? It's cheaper than France uh, or something like that. 
and he just goes ahead. Sits. Cheaper than France? It, it, he said something like it's better than uh, like this city in France. Um, but I, I can't he was remember talking, the city's name. I don't think I don't I don't know if that's what happened. OK, we continue. Continue. We'll, we'll look at it later. But, but yes, um, he sits down <laughs> and he starts singing uh, on top of old Smokey. And the line that gets me is that uh, around the point where he gets to a false hearted lover is worse than a thief. Wink, wink. Uh, Nadine breaks out of her binding, starts clapping like one of those cymbal monkeys and starts chanting in this like high school uh, victory chant. And she's just so excited because um, she thought that it was just like an issue with tonsillitis. But uh, she's able to make it to cheer out tryout because, you know, you're only 18 once. Nadine, known for being eternally 18. Uh, uh, she's a senior. Oh, she's a senior, um, all right. Raises a few questions. I, I, I really like that you pointed out that it's around that line of a false-hearted lover. Do you think Nadine knows that Ed is false-hearted, so to speak? That he really has his eyes on Norma? I think that she has her own personal fears. Uh, I don't know. Because uh, she does seem to react strongly to Norma when we did see them interact way, way back in like episode one. They do act hostile toward each other. But if, if that's what snaps Nadine into focus... You could make a case that maybe like part of her hears Ed talking about a false hearted lover and that awakens her. We've seen her insecurities uh, with things like her inventions beforehand and uh, the overall mm -hmm. flaws in something like the uh, auto running drapes. Um, I would not be surprised if that also translated into her marriage. Um, she still uh, has a fondness for Ed. She still cares for Ed. But at the same time, those frustrations are likely to leak through uh, because she saw herself as a meek little mouse hoping to be noticed. And the fact that Norma is currently in the same city as Ed and they do interact. Um, I, I don't know how much Nadine knows about the, those interactions. I can still see where um, that fear could rest well with Nadine. Uh, and when that it gets close to that sort of line, something may have snapped inside of her mind. And right now mm -hmm. she's having a few uh, cognitive issues, uh, as it were. So um, hoping the best for Nadine yeah. because she's been through a lot, but uh, it's definitely going to be interesting when she tries to go to high school and <laughs> she is likely promptly stopped. I think it's really interesting. N Nadine's character is is an odd one. Um, and I, I guess what, I, what I, I'm trying to cohere my thoughts here is that there's a lot of characters in Twin Peaks with clear eccentricities and like weirdness about them. Mm -hmm. And Nadine is someone who kind of walks this line where her character is very tragic, has consistently been tragic, may or may not continue to be. But I don't think this revelation is fully positive. I think we can both agree this doesn't <laughs> bode perfectly well for her. It doesn't so bode there's well. a lot of tragedy about her. And I think like there's moments where it really does settle in as sad. I mean, we, the previous scene with Nadine was her, you know, taking the pills like it's very, very sad. There's no humor in that moment. And what I think Nadine is captures so much is this this um, mood juxtaposition that we have this scene of uh, Ed singing the song and trying to console his wife who may never recover. And it's, it's a very tender moment. And that tenderness is directly undercut by, you know, Nadine rising up and clapping, you know, with the steeplejack cheer. And it's it's something where I think if it's handled badly, um, 
it could definitely be something that upsets people because Nadine is a character who is not mentally well. She mm-hmm. has not been mentally well since the beginning of this show. I don't know what you want to label it as, diagnose it as, but, you know, you look at a character like Johnny. Johnny is a one-off character who's kind of in the background so far, who is known to have developmental issues and, and a lot of mental issues, mm-hmm. but um, he isn't focused on. And they also don't use it necessarily for laughs. Mm-hmm. It might be used for a strangeness, which it could be offensive in of itself. But Nadine is ostensibly a character with mental health issues who's used for comedy. And that can get really dangerous. I don't think it's been a problem so far mm-hmm. for me as a viewer. But I could see someone else watching this and not liking the fact that they use Nadine for laughs. Like as far uh, as like as far as Ed's reaction uh, to what happened to Nadine. Sure, someone could derive humor from that. But I honestly kind of had the same reaction as Ed just looking at the situation, just why I've died. And it's like, mm-hmm. OK. This is where we're it's, at. It's such a mixture of tragedy, shock and humor where different people are going to look at it different ways. I think Albert's reaction to listening to Ed of, like last episode is actually really revealing because there are two ways to look at like Ed's and, and, and Nadine enormous story. You can be like really sad about like the tragedy of their their situation or you can laugh at the absurdity. Mm-hmm. And both responses are valid. And realistic that some people are going to see all this drama and the absurdity of life and their response is either to cry or to laugh. Mm -hmm. Both are responses when life gets weird and painful. Those are two very real world ways of looking at life. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, not to overestimate Twin Peaks and Nadine, but I think there's (laughs) something to that, that Nadine is such a crystallization of both emotions that she is simultaneously someone to feel very, very sorry for and like want the best for. But just the same, she can be one of the funniest characters to people. Um, yes. It's a tough balance. It is. Um, uh. Speaking of balance, uh, right now, Truman is trying to balance out his feelings toward uh, a certain character whose name rhymes with Mosey. Mosey Mackard. Do you know who it is, Professor? Man, I really enjoyed the introduction of the sixth uh, character <laughs> called Tozy Tackard. Um, <laughs> no, uh, Josie Packard. Uh, we actually get a little bit of information on this uh, episode. Good news. Uh, it seems we haven't seen her yet, but it seems she's not dead yet. Uh, Josie, Josie's in the building. Josie's not in the building, uh, but Pete did call saying oh, that Josie will be in the, the building. building. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll be getting more Josie later. Uh, don't don't know about Catherine or where her whereabouts are, but at the very least, we're going to yes. likely get Josie back. <laughs> uh, and the person who seems to be chasing Josie uh, seems to be doing pretty well as well. Uh, he's staying at the same hotel as Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, what really confuses me about this man, like obviously this guy's going to cause mm-hmm. a little bit of conflict, but like he after he's uh, Cooper is done talking to Ben, uh, this guy just makes a beeline straight for Cooper, just like gets up and walks his direct direction right in line with him and just follows him down the hall. Now, whether or not there are scenes mm-hmm. we're just not seeing between Cooper and this strange man um, is to be seen, uh, whether or not Cooper might know more about the Josie situation. Uh, is to be seen. Uh, but regardless, it's definitely a weird detail to look at. Um, but <laughs> I don't think it's accidental. I cannot say more than that, but I think there are ways to look at that that make sense. Uh-huh. Absolutely. That's all I can really say. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, 
really and that's kind of where i'm leaning at like i I, i'm i'm kind of like uh leaning on the sense that cooper might know more we just don't see it uh the most Mm. the most telling reactions have been with uh cooper when he's addressed uh truman about josie in the past right uh so yeah um i look forward to that elsewise <laughs> uh who knows this might be that fun little red herring that uh he, he just personally really likes to follow closely behind people and it's just his personal quirk um <laughs> well whether you want to consider it a weakness or a strength or neither cooper and truman one thing they have in common is the soft spot in them because what happens in this episode is that Cooper is at first warning Truman not to let his feelings get involved too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Truman wants to go speak to Josie, he has to question her as an officer. He has to question her as the sheriff when Josie is involved in all this, you know, peril yes. where Catherine and Pete and everyone, the sawmill, all that stuff's having a giant question mark. Josie mysteriously disappears is very convenient, you know, and, and Cooper basically saying, Truman, you have to be setting your feelings aside. But then Truman points out it's easier said than done, which Cooper, without really revealing why, we know why as an audience, but he is like, you know what? You have my blessings. So Cooper recognizes, just as I think a lot of viewers will recognize, that Truman's interest in Josie is not too potentially different than Cooper's interest in Audrey. Mm -hmm. Um, At this point, while he did decline Audrey when she was in his bed, uh, he did recognize that that was a barrier he would not cross. Um, it doesn't mean that his feelings are turned off. Yes. And whether it's, again, a weakness, a strength, neither. Um, both Cooper and Truman have that. So Cooper isn't going to stop Truman from letting those feelings get in the way if that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Indeed. Um, so not only is there some suspicion with the law enforcement on Josie, Around the time that Cooper uh, and Truman would have been talking, again, if, if, if the Twin Peaks timeline is correct in what I'm thinking it is, uh, it was around that time that uh, Shelley was actually in the sheriff's office as well um, talking about uh, Leo. So Shelley is talking to Truman, says that she loves Leo. And the scene reminds me a lot of uh, Hank with Norma way back when in season one, because Norma would not testify against Hank. And similarly, Shelley will not testify against Leo. Now, we know behind the scenes the reason is because Bobby is recommending that they keep Leo in the house basically to get insurance money out of him. Um, Cooper seems to pick up on some of these thoughts a little bit. Do you think that the double R uh, just stands for just like the sound of just like regret or poor decisions? It stands for. Hmm. Returning relationships. That's a stretch. Yeah, that's a stretch. I <laughs> think my, I think it's, mine's it's, better. It's, it's as stretchy better. as uh, lit log lady's uh, pitch that she uh, chews on. Um, yeah. But yeah, so yeah. Cooper seems to pick up a bit on Shelly and uh, sniffs, smells like insurance money. So basically what Cooper does is he agrees with her, basically, and says, you know, you're right. You know, I could tell that you've thought a lot about this. You obviously love Leo very much. You hope he'll return. And uh, you are obviously in love with the Leo that is going to come back one day, hopefully. And then he kind of like just kicks her out and she's like, what? As she's being kicked out. Yeah. And hopefully uh, he'll see how great of a wife you are. What? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. It just kind of shoves her out of the room. 
Um, and he it's interesting that he has not picked up on Bobby yet. We have I guess it's a situation where he has never seen Bobby and Shelly in the same room together. I don't think anyone has back when Bobby was at the hospital back when Bobby was at the hospital. He didn't put any anything together. Why Bobby was there. He he vocally wondered why is Bobby here? He's not hurt. Uh, and he also hasn't figured out Bobby's behind the insurance deal here. So despite how you think Bobby is not the best at hiding things, miraculously, it's actually probably the best kept secret in the entire town <laughs> <laughs> at this point is is that relationship. Forget about the secret of Laura Palmer. Let's talk about the secret of that relationship. Um, so speaking of the secret of Laura Palmer, <laughs> I, I find, Professor, that when we redo an episode, um, Segways just are, are more natural, you know, they just no. they just come to me like a vision. <laughs> so James and Donna and Maddie have a lot of content in this episode and you and I are not fans of them. And I, I love to be sarcastic and cheeky right now, but I won't. I'll spare I'll spare us and I'll spare the listeners that we have repeatedly said that they are among our least favorite characters mm-hmm. um, going so far as to Donna basically top both of ours. Very, very low on the bottom of our of our totem pole. Um, I would say this is my favorite episode so far with James and Donna and Maddie. This is probably peak for them. Yeah, for me so far. Yeah, it's funny when you break these uh, kids apart and get them out of their molds. uh, You actually get get some details you like. So, (laughs) uh, no. Yeah, yeah, we got three. We got a few lovely different scenes. Not only is there a bit of conflict with uh, Maddie, Donna and uh, a good old James, uh, especially with uh, this fun little love triangle that's sort of popping out. You know, just you. Uh, we also get a fun little rant from uh, Donna herself, which really uh, does impact the character for me. Oh, I forgot to ask earlier, but you mentioned the just you thing. It reminded me uh, with uh, Ed serenading uh, Nadine in the hospital. Which uh, Hurley do you like better when they are serenading their multiple uh, girlfriends? Absolutely, Ed. Absolutely. You think Ed. Ed is better, better singer, better performer? Uh, it's not it's not about being a better singer. Uh, it's just more so uh, with uh, James's song. It's that song can be very easily manipulative, um, considering like emotions. Like, I don't know what they were practicing for, but a song like Just You, that was only going to throw him into a like big old trouble. I it's, think it's that, the plural you. It's it's just you both and just, me. Just just you as in everyone um but anyway um ed i I can just honestly say like uh sure we're uh, imagining like those words being the trigger uh that kind of got her back up but at the same time i can just imagine ed just being like i like the i like the song old smoky uh i don't want to sing and he's also got just this very like sweet candor to it uh it's, it's very wholesome uh it's very wholesome from ed from James, like he he is a confused teenager. Um, I <laughs> I do, I don't really feel too much for his song other than, yeah, uh, you messed up, bud. You messed up. Fair enough. Um, he didn't mess up too bad, though, because the police do recognize that the cocaine was planted. So they do let uh, him out of the prison. Cooper told him, you know, listen, uh, I almost forgot his name. I was going to say Johnny, (laughs) Jeremy, James. That's his name. (laughs) Listen, James, you know, if you ever need to talk, you can talk to me. Don't try to take everything on for yourself. Don't try to figure everything out for yourself. You know, again, warning him. I don't want to see you here anymore. And, And James, instead of responding in any single way, says nothing, 
pivots like awkwardly. He doesn't like turn. He like pivots and then struts out the room. He struts out the police department. Uh So I don't know to what extent it's clear he took the advice that was being dished out to him by Dale Cooper. Um, We then get James go to the diner and uh, meets up with Maddie. And we get a recognition here that James is aware that Donna is is trying very hard to look cool. Uh, He says to Maddie, you know, Mm -hmm. doesn't her smoking bother you? Referring to Donna. She's trying to act like all tough all Mm -hmm. of a sudden. So, um, you know, I don't think every situation we need characters to confirm what we're already thinking. But I think it shows that James isn't completely clueless. You know, he he may (laughs) not be, you know, the the tallest orchid in the plant, but (laughs) he's also not the worst either. Um, So he 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 confides with Maddie. (laughs) Yeah, but then again, uh, after, like, uh, he does end up confiding with Maddie, uh, and just after that sort of, like, talk about realization, and Donna just kind of comes in and uh, just talks about, it's like, yeah, well, uh, you know what, uh, I met some, uh, I met someone uh, while doing uh, the deliveries uh, for the double R uh, for Meals on Wheels. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know those old people. Uh, they have yeah, pretty actually- cool stories, huh? Yes, pretty good, cool stories. Like, yeah, well, th- there's this guy that they're sweet and charming, and uh, and uh, Donnie Stewart goes out. Obviously, this is uh, <laughs> not word for word, but it was basically the emotion. And for uh, once in my life, I sympathize with James, because I'm like, I'm thinking of James. You're just like <laughs> sitting here, like, yeah, Donna's been acting weird recently, hasn't she? And then Donna comes in. Hey, I met someone really cool. Unlike someone I know takes smoke and then struts out the building. You know, and I'm like, you know, I feel for James here. I'm not saying James is an innocent party by any means. He's not. But um, I, I feel for him in the sense that, man, Donna would be annoying to deal with right now. <laughs> I, I, I don't. Yeah. But with the scene that follows, I don't quite. Um, because later on. Uh, we get the fun moment where, uh, like, uh, Cousin Maddie and James are inside the same room, and uh, during a bit of uh, distress, uh, they hold one another, uh, and James goes mm-hmm. in for a kiss, uh, in which they, they, they do kiss, and uh, yeah. Donna and again, he's no him. innocent party. He is, he's just as confused. Both of them are a mess. Oh, yeah, they're um, an absolute mess. And I can understand why Donna feels the way she does about James. It goes both ways. You know, in that moment, I can sympathize with James. But in other moments, yeah, I agree. I can sympathize with Donna. But yeah, uh, with the fact that uh, right after like Donna catches him, uh, he's like, wait, and immediately like wrecks <laughs> the Palmer household's like side table, chases uh, Donna out. Donna drives away and he says, why? Uh, uh, James, I can probably give you a couple of <laughs> reasons. I can probably give you a couple of reasons. I don't think you're entirely clueless of the situation, but I can give you a couple of reasons. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, um, I guess if I can, I can step back a little bit, adding on to the, you know, emotions that they already feel toward each other with Maddie, with Laura's memory. James is also further messed up by speaking with his mother. Uh, it didn't get shown in this episode. This was the episode in season two where or there was originally in the script going to be a scene with James and his mother. But there were casting issues. She doesn't end up showing up in this episode and uh this had previously been planned for episode four so this is the second time and unfortunately we aren't going to see the mother now no um but we do get the sense when he comes back he talks to maddie and says god i hate her you know he's just really upset and it kind of brings back that idea earlier he said to maddie at the diner that he he feels sometimes like he just wants to get on his motorcycle and drive away and there's a sense in which james right now 
is is dealing with these emotions toward his mother, Laura's passing that, while again, I do not excuse James's situation. I am not at all surprised that when he is encountering someone who looks and talks just like Laura in his confused state, he 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 goes back to that. Mm -hmm. Considering the fact that the day they found Laura's body, he made out with Donna. Yeah, he is not new to the idea of impulsively lashing latching out for affection in these moments. He needs some sort of um, warmth and affection in his life. And the only way he knows how to do that is to get involved with these girls. Um, And that just tangles it further and further and further. Mm -hmm. Donna, meanwhile, is going through her own stuff. And honestly, probably one of my favorite Donna scenes of all the entire series, I'll say that, is Donna at Laura's tombstone. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of my highlights from this episode. Oh, yeah, Um, I think we can agree with that. She's talking to Laura there at the tombstone. She talks with Laura at the tombstone and she says, you know, Harold's an oddball, but anyone can seem like that when you look close enough, which is a surprisingly mature thing for Donna to say. You know, she looks at Harold and is like, yeah, he's weird. But like anyone, if you look too closely at the at them, you see their weirdness come out. But as she talks to Laura, you know, keeps talking about James and Maddie, she gets more emotional. You know, how can you be so smart about things like that and so stupid about so much else? Referring to, uh. Her belief that Laura probably knew that her um, that uh, Donna and uh, James had feelings for each other. Laura might already known about that. How can you be so smart about that? But so dumb on other things Hmm. uh, in your life and says, I'm mad at you. I'm I'm mad at you. When it was you and me and James, it kind of worked. Now you're gone. I love James and it's a mess. I want it to be like you, Laura, to have your strength and courage. But look what it did. Look what it did to you. As much as I love Laura, I love you, Laura. Most of the time we were trying to solve your problems. And you know what? We still are not mine or James's or Maddie's, but yours. You're dead, Laura, but your problems keep hanging around. It's almost like they didn't bury you deep enough. <laughs> and um, I think it's 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 very reminiscent to me of the moment where Bobby uh, lashed out at the funeral, which was one of my highlights of season one. Um and I think that it's so interesting seeing a different version of it. I don't draw a lot of parallels with Bobby and Donna, really. Um, they're both close to Laura, but that's about it. But in this moment, I think she has almost an inverted version of what Bobby did. Bobby publicly lashed out at everyone for not caring about Laura. Donna now is privately lashing out at Laura for her own problems. Yeah. So both are kind of recognizing things that maybe you and I, Professor, as viewers are like, yeah, really, everything is kind of revolving around Laura's problems. You're not wrong. <laughs> yes, uh, I really do love this scene. I love the fact that she does leave the lady slipper uh, at the foot of the tombstone. Hey, if you kind of think about it, maybe Donna mm-hmm. is Laura's prince. Um, but anyway. Wow. <laughs> hey, man, I got Uden <laughs> on the mind. Very, what does that even <laughs> I got shameless plug. If you're interested in revolutionary <laughs> girl, Utena, I have a YouTube video recommendation for you. Um, <laughs> snake eye dreams at youtube.com. You can email us at uh, snake eye dreams at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at snake eye dreams. One, the one is the numeral as in the, 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 the slash that looks kind of like an L. <laughs> but regardless, um, you know, the numeral. <laughs> no, it, it's definitely uh, a fun scene that uh, does cement well with uh, Donna. I, I think with this scene, as well as the scene that follows with uh, Maddie, are probably scenes that, mm-hmm. uh, like, people might uh, 
point to, which contradicts my theories with uh, the whole entire cousin Maddie being Laura Palmer. Uh, yes, I, I will say I'm or inversely, it, it makes you more suspicious because it's so on the nose. Because uh, <laughs> I, I assume you're going to talk about Maddie right now, and I'm I'm, I'm excited. Yes, uh, cousin Maddie has this very fun moment uh, that does come up uh effectively uh after like everything happens with james and james runs out uh she's just pacing back and forth with frustration uh and while leland listens on that um she she she's just having a hard time with everything around her she says laura was my cousin i loved her and she died i don't know anything else she says that uh the funeral's been over for a bit uh ha- uh she just came here for a funeral but the funeral has been over for a bit um, and it feels like she fell into a dream yep, and she fell into a dream. Uh, so, yeah, um, she's uh, also says how uh, she is like people keep on making it seem like she's Laura Palmer. I haven't seen many scenes like this. Like I could, we could have her assume that uh, that persona is being put onto her by James. Uh, I haven't seen many mm-hmm. scenes in which Donna has been really pushing that Um or uh, like if we were considering the family members she's been around. Um, yeah, I think it's a real disappointment that we didn't get more with like even just one scene with Bobby reacting to Maddie. Mm-hmm. I think we need a little more evidence to believe Maddie's claim. And either way, whether the claim is true or not, I think it's a shame we never get to see anything with Bobby reacting since Bobby clearly had a feelings for Laura. Now, Whatever you want to categorize those feelings as, there was an attachment. It's a shame we don't get anything with Maddie and Bobby. Now, now the closest thing we get was Dr. Jacoby, but uh, I can't remember. She didn't interact with Jacoby, did she? No. And I'm not to say it can't ever happen. It's just that for how long Maddie's been a character, this should have already happened. Yes. Like, we should have... I mean, Jacoby kind of has an excuse because last time Jacoby saw Maddie, she was wearing a really expensive wig. I mean, cheap <laughs> wig. And, <laughs> and, and uh, he was attacked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, it's not like there's been an opportunity for him to really interact with Maddie too much. But Bobby's a little different in that regard. Like, I don't know if Maddie's going to school. I don't know how old... If she's the same age as, as Laura here. Yeah. I mean, in your theory, she'd be the exact same age. She is. So she'd be going to school. So yeah, uh, uh, you think she would see Bobby? Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether or not uh, the biggest, uh, the thing that I lean on more, because I'm still convinced this is in fact Laura Palmer, even though she may be looking mm-hmm. directly at the screen at me saying, hey, professor, I'm not Laura Palmer. I'm still pretty convinced she's Laura makes Palmer. You believe, it makes you, <laughs> does, does that make you more like, convinced that she is it makes it more interesting because either a uh she laura palmer has had a history of manipulating people but she it seems that from her manipulations she was upfront with some um so whether or not this is another layer uh that could be an issue uh another one b is the two selves uh idea the thing that jacoby had mentioned that she had effectively lived two uh separate lives a double life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not only would Laura Palmer have an experience of living a double life, but say, for example, if we are to take this into the weird dreamlike element, what if, per se, somehow that had been slipped? Something about Laura Palmer had died or rather ascended uh, into the weird fold um that uh, Bob and the uh, giant and the uh, red curtain room man are part of 
Uh, and Cousin Maddie was just a result of a person that um, is now living on with hardly a memory. I mean, again, she's uh, it's weird to be very nitpicky at certain dialogue in the scene. But she says that she's Laura Palmer's cousin. She doesn't really know much else. Or when uh, Laura's mother mm-hmm. in a previous episode was consoling her, it's like, hey, by the way, uh, how's this person? You know, your mother. Uh, she not only does she just kind of like seem very distant uh, and not really responsive to the mother comment, but she even quickly sort of changes the subject. Uh, You could say that there's been clearly a distraction because she's been distraught, but we haven't really heard Maddie talk more about her family or anything like that whatsoever or world outside of Laura Palmer, Mm -hmm. Um, which again makes me... Yeah, the one time we get of her family being mentioned, she does not seem to recognize. She doesn't recognize her. She's too distracted. Uh, I'm leaning more to the first than the second. So I'm still in the camp, but it's Mm -hmm. it's more so on my question end on whether or not uh, Cousin Maddie, if this were to be true, how much she is even aware of that. Um, so no, I'm, I'm still very <laughs> convinced, uh, that, uh, she is in fact, nice. uh, I think that l- will probably go on to a few more episodes. They're going to have a whole musical number telling me about how this is not the case. I'll probably still be stuck to it. <laughs> You're going to be over here making your, uh, independent documentary, uh, a spinoff of the God's Not Dead series. It's called Laura Palmer's Not Dead. Uh, the studies into your... Cousin Maddie in Tibet. Yes. Uh, coming this fall uh, to a bookstore yes. near you. <laughs> so before we before we leave, Maddie, and I appreciate your, your thoughts, Professor. I, I'm sure other listeners like myself are fascinated as you work through this, these theories of yours, um, whether they're the same as theories we've had, whether they're true or not. Um, they're very interesting to hear. I won't say more than that. Thank you. But before we leave, Maddie, um, we do have a moment here where, where uh, Leland is there consoling Maddie, saying that both uh, he and uh, Maddie want life to go back to how it was before. They all want life to return to how it was before. Uh, Leland said if life could only be like those summers back up at Pearl Lakes. Um, and then right after he says that, Truman and Cooper arrive to arrest Leland uh, for the murder of Jacques Renault. Yep. Uh, so we finally get that payoff from Jacoby way earlier on in the episode um, yep. saying that he knew who was uh, the person who strangled. So Jacoby, presumably in his trance state, remembered it was Leland. And that was enough for Truman and Cooper to go and make the arrest. Um, that is not the last time Leland will be important in this episode. Nope. I mean, it's the last time chronologically, but we do have a lot more to talk about with Leland. Mm-hmm. So if it's kosher with you, I think the last thing we have on our docket today, it's not. It's definitely not the. It's uh, last but not least uh, is everything with Bob, the one-armed man, all of that stuff. Yeah. Because this episode gave us a lot of movement in that story. Absolutely. Uh, when it comes down towards uh, like Leland uh, and kind of branching off from everything I said uh, with cousin Mandy and Laura, uh, Leland comes towards the police station um, beforehand. Cooper uh, earlier in the day was talking to Truman about like trying to find the special psychic link to Bob between everyone who's encountered him. And Leland does come in a few scenes later uh, with a statement saying like, yeah, no, I, I know this name. Uh, it must be Robertson. Mind you, Ronette had uh, earlier in the episode a 
uh, letter pulled from her fingernail B. Uh, which looking at the letters R, B, and T, um, like I was looking back and forth wondering, like, is it rabbit? I'm, I'm thinking it might be a rabbit. Um, but, uh, and Lucy. Uh, side note for you, David Lynch fans, if you haven't already heard, <laughs> uh, David Lynch has been uploading to YouTube the rabbits uh, short film series. I don't know if short film is the term everyone would use, but uh, he uploaded Rabbits 1, and then he recently, like, just literally, like, yesterday, I think it was, as of recording, he uploaded um, the Rabbits featuring Susie, which is the Naomi Watts solo poem, I guess I'm gonna call Mm -hmm. it. Uh, So he is continuing uploading, it seems like, weekly more from Rabbits. So if you're a David Lynch fan in general... (laughs) Check it out. <laughs> yes, uh, clearly the answers must be there. It's not but sponsored. No, um, Cooper assumes uh, maybe going to the conclusion too fast or too slow. Not sure yet, uh, but he's very certain. Wait, so wait, 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 Professor, why do you, why are you convinced it's not Rabbit? Why, why can't it be about the bunny? Like, tell <laughs> no, me. no, no, I, I'm less convinced it might be uh, Robertson, actually. Uh, Rabbit is, uh, Again, we've seen nothing of rabbits. We've seen owls, but maybe that's maybe that's a clue. There's no rabbits around because the owls uh, are taking over. They're not what they seem, but clearly the rabbit populace is gone. Uh, anyway, uh, I think Cooper might be drawing conclusions a little bit too fast, but he does uh, connect uh, like Bob to these letters, believing that maybe Robertson is uh, trying to be uh, spelled out or rather Robert. Um, so uh, hope. So we, we get to learn more that uh, apparently Leland met a man by the name Robertson in a uh, nearby house, which currently now it's boarded over being investigated. And he would just sit uh, at his house and he flick matches at Leland. He's like, what well, do you want to play with fire? And he just flicks mas- matches at him. Uh, yeah, uh, sounds close to our guy at the very least. Um. I, I think it's really interesting that Cooper was about to, like, walk away from the conversation and they really didn't ask Leland much about it. Like they finally found someone who knew or at least claims to know the man in the photo. And as soon as they're given the words Robertson, like, OK, and they're about to like walk away without really questioning more, which I think is really strange for Cooper, who believes so much in like fate, coincidence, dreams that when he finally meets someone is like, yeah, I know that man. He doesn't like ask more questions he just kind of like was cool with just like walking away but as soon as leland does flick the match and say that he's like well that's got to be our guy the play with fire guy has got to be our guy (laughs) and then again he leaves he doesn't really question more on it so that limits our information too you know if we were gonna is there anything more to that story or is that really all there is um i i just Uh, think it's weird that as an investigator he doesn't stick around and ask more questions (laughs) of leland i mean he'll have plenty of opportunities now that leland's been arrested yeah, uh, which w- honestly was pretty good timing, uh, considering like I don't know how forward he would be on the information while being behind bars. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. um, but overall, that was a um, fun scene nonetheless. Uh, but speaking of chronological um mysteries or what timing even is in Twin Peaks, uh, we do get a little bit of uh, shoe check shoe sizes being checked out finally Uh, after purgatory eternity uh in the in the sheriff department uh (laughs) finally he's able police department he's finally able to offer the sheriff some shoes so philip gerard our one-armed man uh is trying to sell some shoes to um sheriff truman 
and he's he wants something economical and a bit cheaper. And you know, uh, Philip Gerard's very accommodating and, uh, and interested in in making the right transaction with him. But then he looks over and he sees just kind of randomly the picture of uh, of Bob, the sketch on the table, and he has a little bit of a reaction. He's a little yeah. bit of an episode. He, he needs to go take his medicine, so he's asked to be brought to uh, the bathroom. And then later in the episode, uh, they just uh, figure out, like, wait. Yeah, he went to the bathroom. No one really checked on this old man after the medication. We no. just wait until the end of the episode. Like, again, like, time is weird in Twin Peaks. Like, there there is definitely a dream bit of logic on, like, how long it takes, like, for, like, Mr. Gerard to be noticed <laughs> in general. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, he's over here turning from Hyde to Jekyll in the bathroom and no one notices. Yeah, he has no the one. syringe. He has the syringe that he's taking. Uh, and uh, I, I can't uh, like it looks like he's about to take it uh, or he had recently taken it. I can't quite tell. But the big thing that I do tell uh, is that there is a blue liquid in it. Very similar to the beginning mm-hmm. of the episode that Rosenfeld uh, does point out, whether it's a fun like uh, joke on the overall propping, like looks like dye. Because it does look like blue dye inside of it. But no, both Ronette, uh, after experiencing a fun Bob moment uh, under her fingernail, uh, having blue liquid being sent into her via um, that little IV, and the syringe with uh, blue liquid um, with chemi- uh, without chemicals, uh, he points, as it says. Um, he, so Cooper like, interprets yeah. that the he here is Philip Gerard, the one-armed man. He will yes, point we- them in the right direction if they follow. Yes, but after Mr. Gerard has this Jekyll and Hyde moment, he starts speaking in a very strange, distorted tone. Whether it is just uh, dir- uh, like it is a certain choice uh, upon direction or someone, uh, just to well, try it, this to is not the first time we've heard that this tone. Uh, but we also have right. This, this is the same tone he had when he was in Cooper's dream way back yes, in episode uh, two, which, which I was about to mention. Um, huh. Or are we to continue? Or or are we to uh, make a comparison not only to the dream, but for just general people whose voices are very distorted uh, and strange? Mm. It makes this whole entire idea of the owls even more confused. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So between like the friendly giant Bob uh, and uh, the individual uh, of the curtain room, um, we have this strange distortion from Mr. Gerard. so, yeah. Um, and if we are to assume like the earlier things with Bob, like even Mr. Gerard recognizes Bob. All these people are having visions of Bob and Leland saying before that uh, he knew a Bob. Um, it makes me wonder whether or not this ageless factor, especially in Cooper's stream, Laura Palmer, her appearance having this ageless factor. Yeah. Could it have to do with like an idea of ascending, if you will? Uh, like that is Laura interesting Palmer, because, yeah, if. if- if this Robertson guy is the same one, if he recognized the picture, that means that this guy looks the same now in Cooper's dreams and other people's visions as he would have, you know, how many years ago, how many decades ago when Leland yeah. was a kid. So something obviously is going going on strange with that. And yes. you're right. Yeah. Laura in the flash forward does not appear to have aged nearly as significantly as Cooper is aged up with the makeup. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, it's very curious on what these beings are. These I, I'm I know that there's no confirmation with the giant uh, or the uh, shorter man, but man for another place. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, but he but 
having Bob at least compared to the owls and having these very similar characteristics, uh, it does make one wonder indefinitely. Uh, and what this blue if they liquid are in fact even not what they is, seem. Yes. And whatever yes. this blue liquid is, maybe it is like not what it seems. Owl's blood. I don't know what this blue liquid is. Maybe it's just legitimately like blue dye activates the Bob formula. Uh, we don't know yet, but it absolutely uh, is. I'm waiting for the deleted scene where uh, Albert Rosenfeld, you know, looked at it and was like, hmm, looks like blood. And then he punctures a hole in it, like sips it. And is like, no, it's just Kool-Aid. I'm, I'm missing that scene <laughs> or or better yet than a Kool-Aid. If he would have actually positively identified the liquid as owl's blood, <laughs> meaning that owl's blood was being pumped directly into uh, Ronette. Whatever happened with or without this liquid, Mr. Gerard uh, sensed Bob and it seems like Mr. Gerard is on a mission. So uh, let's see how this goes for this one armed man. Um, what's <laughs> also a fun point is that before we run into the uh bathroom uh cooper and uh truman are actually talking back and forth um about like mr gerard and like no he's in uh, he went to the bathroom with uh because of medication and so on uh while they're talking about mr gerard right behind truman right inside the shot whoever uh ended up like deciding this shot whether it is uh the current director mm -hmm. whether it is david lynch whether it is a writer or anything like that or if it's coincidence there was an owl portrait right behind him and that is just ah it is very exciting between like some of the things that you have pointed out in the past, like uh, with uh, the gentleman who plays Bob uh, accidentally getting to one of the mirror shots mm -hmm. in the past. Frank Silva. Yep. Yes. Uh, it's hard for me to think that this was unintentional, but regardless, it still is a fantastic eerie shot to be led into this lovely little bathroom scene. It is a lovely little bathroom, isn't it? Yes, it is a lovely um, little bathroom. One of the urinals is broken, but otherwise very lovely. Bathroom. I give it an eight out of ten um, as far as police, as far as the amount of bathrooms I've seen in police departments over the course of my lifetime. Um, <laughs> uh, that exhausts all the topics and questions I had. Uh, do you have anything else that you wish to address in this podcast? Uh, no, not that I can think of. Overall, I'm, uh, very happy on how this episode went. Um, Let's see the I'm audio. very excited to see who Harold buries. <laughs> I hope this um, one actually ends up being yeah. finished. Because <laughs> by the time we reach the third one, I'm just going to be doing the Muppet voice the entire time. I'm, I'm going to be singing in Muppet voice and some people might like that, but I don't know if anyone's ready for it. That, uh, we got to get the Khalil cut ready. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my last question, I guess, for you, Professor, as always, who killed Laura Granite, Palmer Granite? Uh, as far as Laura Palmer goes, the current crazy idea inside of my head uh, is the fact that the opinion, I should say, the very strongly worded opinion is that Laura Palmer w accepted her death, but it wasn't truly a death. And she had went in to see Bob to ascend to this strange owldom in which she is now immortal in Cooper's dreams. And cousin Maddie is the shed part of her, uh, as well as the other self, the second part of the body being sent down the river or potentially even the literal Cousin Maddie. Feeling less on that second one, but hey, uh, there's still plenty of episodes to go to discover more things for me to conspire with. So, 
Laura didn't necessarily die of like natural causes. It's more that she just like her soul left her body or something. And then the body manifests as a husk that becomes Maddie. Uh, that's, uh, kind of, because again, we have to also explain the fact that there was literally a body that was sent down the river. So, well, that's the thing is that Maddie's also considered literally a person. Yeah. So if, if, if that's Laura, what happened to the actual cousin Maddie is another question. <laughs> that is the question. So, so it's whether or not cousin Maddie actually is around. Um, because again, with uh, Sarah, I don't know how much like the families actually speak to one another. So, yeah, um, it's mm. either uh, Laura Palmer's two selves multiplied and split in half or like that cousin Maddie might actually just be dead in the bag. Uh, but I am still convinced like this is not cousin Maddie inside the Palmer household. All right. Well, thank you, Professor. Uh, I think we are good to wrap up. Uh, thank you, as always. Oh, 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 I still have one. I, I still have one thing to say. Oh. Say it. Say it. Snowflake. Aquarius. Scorpio. White square. Black diamond. Black circle. Black lozenge. Cancer. Upper right shadowed white square. Scorpio. Black diamond. Cancer. Thin black lozenge. Virgo. Aquarius. Pisces. Black square. Capricorn. Have a good night, everybody. Click. <laughs>